Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Markets get their hopes up. Investors look past fears of a cold war with China and a possible second wave of COVID. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. It was a week of hope, but is it hope triumphing over experience? Equities continue to climb higher, but lurking in the background are those growing tensions between Beijing and Washington, and as well, a fear that there might be a second wave of a pandemic that, as of this week, has claimed 100,000 American lives. The economic numbers are stunning. To be sure, this week, jobless claims fell for the first time in two and a half months. But during that period of time, over 40 million Americans have become unemployed. Fiscal and monetary authorities continue to look for more solutions. That's after they've already thrown trillions of dollars into the stew of government support. So which story is it we should believe? The hopeful one of the equity markets back almost to the level they were pre-COVID? or the one that tells us that we are not yet out of the woods. Rick Reeder of BlackRock really knows rates like no one else in this new world, and he sees the effect of Fed action on yields right across the yield curve. What the Fed has done has been pretty powerful, but you know there is something that I think people underestimate when you, when you think about what the Fed does, what central banks can do. When they, when they wheel out the bazooka and say, this is what we will do if we need to, the markets tend to take them at their word, particularly as Fed that has a lot of credibility today. So the Fed actually hasn't done a lot in the credit markets at all. But what's happening is there's a sense that the Fed will be there for emergency reasons or to provide for markets to actually function effectively. So what's happening now is you're seeing a manifestation of what the Fed has done is take interest rates to zero. They're going to keep them at zero for an extended period of time. And what it's as long as 
the economy is reasonably stable, then this demand for income, and I know we've talked about it a bunch of times, the demand for income in the world because of the aging demographic, et cetera, is so profound. And as long as people feel like, gosh, I need to, uh, the, the economy's gonna be stable, I can start to go and get that income. And then when you think about the size of the high yield market, David, it's only a trillion dollar market. If you think about the market cap of Amazon, it's more, it's been, uh, and, you, and you think about, uh, it's a bigger, Amazon's bigger than the uh, entire high yield market. There's not enough income in the world. And so what you're seeing is this, this gosh, I got to get income. Economy's doing better. I'm anticipating it will continue to do better. And so the surge of money that's come in has been impressive to say the least. So as a result, yields are really suppressed, I would say, and it's reasonably cheap still to borrow money despite everything that's happened. Does that sort of give governments a blank check for stimulus? We had two former central bankers, Karstens and Weber, come out and say this is really dangerous because we're basically going to have the central banks funding the government debt. <clears throat> so, you know, it, I mean, that's a long, complicated discussion. But I would say a couple of things that are really important. One is there is something that's really profound about the ability for the governments to actually borrow today. I'm not saying there's an unlimited amount the governments can borrow. They have to be conscious of you, you can put too much debt on a system. You create a crowding out effect for the corporate sector, households, financials, et cetera. But today, because of the demographic we talk about, the system is actually set up to be a lender. Insurance companies, pension funds actually need the assets and actually need to lend. And what's happened when you drop rates to so low um, it's causing people to say, gosh, where do I go to actually be a lender? And so in today's environment, you can actually you can actually create some more debt on the system as long as you're creating nominal GDP, which I would argue in the U.S., we will have some, some improvement, significant improvement in nominal GDP to pay down the debt over time. But I think it's fair to say we shouldn't go too far. But to put a bit more debt on the system, given the circumstances, is actually not as scary as it's been historically. Think about it, when we were back in 06, 07, the households were indebted because of the housing market, the financials were indebted. We're in a better position today. That being said, you've always got to be pragmatic about it. You can't just keep doing it. And uh, But we can afford to do a little more debt, certainly to get to the other side of what is a shock to the economic system. So, so Rick, that, that's the fixed income side of your book. Let's go over to the equity side, because a lot of people are saying, boy, the equities look like they're pretty high considering what we're really seeing in the economy. Are the equities telling us something meaningful about the recovery? <laughs> well, the first is we can't leave the fixed income side because it's part of why the equities are doing, uh, doing what they're doing. When you move <laughs> interest rates to, 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 to zero, then you're basically telling people you would need to find something else to do. And uh, and when you can't create income in other ways, you need to find something else to do. And you create this transmission effect that gets into the discount rate on equities, it gets into the alternative uh, assets that equities are. And listen, I, I think the equity market is too high on a short-term basis, given what the economy is telling you. But part of what I think people have been maybe a, maybe a bit short-sighted about is you don't buy equities for the next quarter. And people talk a lot about next quarter and P-E ratio off of this year. If you go over the intermediate term and think about, gosh, you've got, we're going to have interest, low interest rates for a long time. And you think about where earnings are going to be over a long period of time because equities are a long duration, the longest duration asset there is. Equity valuations, when you take equity risk premium and think about where we are versus on a low interest rate, on a low level where companies can borrow and actually buy back their stock if they want to, Equities are not high. I mean, I, I think they can go higher. I mean, near term, do I think they should pull back a little bit? Probably. But, you know, if you're building balance in your portfolio and you're a long-term investor or medium-term investor, to hold equities in the portfolio, I, you know, versus owning, 
you're not going to make any money owning the 10-year Treasury note at 68 basis points, 69 basis points. So I do think that uh, that equities make sense as long as you're an investor and can be thoughtful about, gosh, I'm not going to look at, you know, could I go down in the next week or so? You could go down a bit. But I think people are underestimating equities for the, for the intermediate to long haul are actually still OK value here. That was Rick Reeder of BlackRock. Coming up, we talk with the governor of one of the states hit hardest by the coronavirus as it moves cautiously to open back up. Governor Phil Murphy of New Jersey. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. New Jersey has been one of the state's hardest hit by the coronavirus. And Governor Phil Murphy has been on the front lines, organizing efforts to bend the curve, comforting those afflicted, and, as he says, playing money ball by sticking to the science. I hope what we can offer folks um, is that, you know, some basic sort of themes, which is, number one, public health creates economic health. In as much as we're all chomping at the bit, to get everything opened again, uh, if we if we transpose those steps or we jump the gun, I think we throw gasoline on the fire. And I think we've been very deliberate. And the second handed glove with that is we say all the time that data determines dates. So in as much as we don't ever want this to be abstract, in fact, we eulogize a handful of people every day. I call families every day to make sure it always stays personal. Having said that, this is money ball. This is what's the data telling us and what's it allow that data allow us to do. And I I hope that uh, that we get that right. So far, so good. And in just about every one of those briefings that I've seen, at least, you also give credit to the people in New Jersey for complying with the restrictions that are not easy to comply with. You mentioned chomping at the bit. People are chomping at the bit in New Jersey and elsewhere as well. As you start to back off and it's not just an on off switch, it's by measures. How do you ensure compliance? It's going to get harder and harder. Yeah, it, it probably is. But I have to say both individuals, David, in terms of staying at home and staying away from each other and wearing face coverings, as well as businesses, both big and small, the compliance has been overwhelming relative to any expectation. Now, clearly, as the weather's gotten warmer, as the clock has continued to tick, as folks see other states that have been less hard hit than New Jersey and New York, as they, you know, that's all human nature, and I, I get that. Uh, are there more folks today than there were a month ago uh, saying, you know, I'm going to open on June something? Yeah, there are some more, but I will say this. And, and by the way, I think the other point I would make is that we have we've done we've started to open up. We've not. This is not, uh, you know, we we recognize that we need to take steps. For the most part, folks have done the right thing. What about the politics of it within New Jersey? We've seen at least in some other places, some other states. Uh, a fair amount of politics involved, where some people are really not just clamoring to get back, but really demonstrating, uh, pretty active in it. What's been the politics in New Jersey? Do you have the legislature with you? Do you have the politicians backing you here? Yeah, for the most part, we do. There have been some demonstrations. There's no question about it. Nothing at the scale that we've seen in a place like Michigan, for instance. But there have been pretty regular demonstrations. And I, I don't begrudge that. We never have. I would prefer folks to them virtually and that they don't congregate. Uh, but uh, that bothers me more than the demonstrations. Uh, you know, there's always exceptions with any legislature, but we, we've had a very good across the aisle give and take, generally strong support 
Uh, and we've needed them. You know, we need laws to get passed. We need to, for instance, we need an ability to borrow money to fill up the enormous uh, budget hole that we have uh, as an example. But so far, so good. Again, there are some folks who uh, naturally in any democratic reality are going to uh, go off and, and say and do their own things. But for the most part, we've, we're, we've been in a good place. One of the tricky things everyone is confronting is reopening of the schools. Uh, now, unfortunately, with the summer, most people are not going to school anyway. But you've got the fall coming up. It's a lot of uh, uncertainty about how that's going to work. As you approach that question, what are the criteria you're going to use? What are the things you're considering about how and when to open your schools? Yeah, we've promised folks by sort of mid-June we're going to give them guidance, uh, at least on pre-K through 12. And we're clearly talking to the universities and higher ed community constantly as well. Um, and it's it's you know, my bias, David, strongly is that we get back to school. Uh, we've done the virtual stuff as well as any American state, but there's for a whole host of reasons, including mental health, the richness of the experience. Uh, I'd like I want to see us back in school, but it's got to be a new normal. If you ask me a different question, but relatedly, what's my biggest? What, what's the hardest nut to crack? I think it's gonna it's going to be the young, healthy. Asymmetric, asymptomatic, unwitting student who could pass this virus to an older educator, administrator, someone with underlying health challenges. That's got to be the one piece of this that we've got to get right. I think we can with social distancing, face coverings, maybe virtual instruction, even within the in the bricks and mortar reality. But we got to make sure we get that right. One of the things you've said is a particular challenge in New Jersey is long-term care facilities. It's not unique to New Jersey, but you've had a big issue with that. Uh, what are you doing about that? How can you really, going forward, sort of protect some of our elderly, some of the people with some of the underlying conditions? Yeah, we've been clobbered in long-term care. We're not alone, for sure, but uh, of the 11,401 deaths, almost 5,000 of them are from long-term care facilities. Uh, and by the way, early on, what I just mentioned about schools Early on, that was sort of the, the spark that created the fire, the asymptomatic, unwitting, uh, heroic, by, I might add, healthcare employee or loved one visiting uh, and unwittingly passing it on. So we've thrown the kitchen sink at this, including at the uneven operator uh, performance. The attorney general's got an, an investigation outstanding. The National Guard, I'm very happy to say the president has just re-upped the funding to extend the National Guard. They're in a lot of our long-term care facilities. The Federal Veterans Administration has come in and helped us out, not just in our veterans' homes, which have been hit, but also in other homes. We hired a nationally renowned firm. We're now, we're now in the process of universal testing and retesting, cohorting, separating patients positive from non-positive. Uh, we've learned a lot of lessons. Uh, the in, That industry has learned a lot. We all have the hard way, unfortunately. But it's also an economic issue, without a doubt. Uh, we are getting increasing numbers of unemployed, and that includes New Jersey. I think is it one in nine now you're up to? Uh, yeah. at, at what point do you expect this is going to bottom out? Do you see a bottom to this unemployment, and it's starting to turn back around? Please, God, sooner than later. Uh, I, I think it's correlated with a couple of things, David. Number one, the responsible, continued responsible reopening, that we get that right, that we don't have, you know, we're going down a one-way street. I don't want to turn the car around and go back the other way. Uh, and secondly, I'll give you a big game changer, and that is 
direct federal cash assistance to states and municipalities. Uh, it's talked about. There are a couple of bills, including uh, Bob Menendez, one of our great senators, co- uh, co-sponsor with a Republican colleague, Bill Cassidy in Louisiana, uh, is a good example. Uh, Speaker Pelosi with the HEROES Act. Uh, we need that, uh, not just a blue state, not just New Jersey. All American states need that. And, and frankly, that's the, the biggest potential accelerant that's available to us right now to reboot our economy and get as close to that that a long, uh, uh, long sought after V-shaped recovery. That's to me the biggest game changer available. That was Governor Phil Murphy of New Jersey. Coming up, Europe finally gets its act together for a fiscal stimulus package. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We wrap up the week with our very special contributor, Larry Summers, as always. So, Larry, welcome. Good to have you here. Uh, Throughout the entire week, markets were sort of a little nervous about China. And then at the very end of the week, President Trump had a big news conference at the White House. And he said, boy, there are bad things coming for China. He did withdraw from the WHO, so there's going to be sanctions. But the markets kind of shrugged it off. Is this real or is it saber rattling? Some of both. Uh, Our withdrawal from the WHO is probably not as consequential as when the United States decided not to join the League of Nations after the First World War. But it may be the most important withdrawal from internationalism that the United States has engaged in since the Second World War. It's a completely irresponsible act that will set back the effort to combat disease in the world and will ultimately hurt uh, our security. God knows the WHO is deeply flawed, but the United States should be fixing it, not abandoning it. And future generations will regret this decision and the lack of trust uh, that comes from it. It's not something that affects the profits of companies over the next several years, so it doesn't affect the stock market. But that's the really consequential thing. The sparring on Hong Kong doesn't involve something that is going to concretely hurt corporate profits. That's why the market uh, didn't react. And the market's been pricing in the fact that the United States and China are at deep loggerheads in a way they haven't been uh, since Nixon opened to China 
50 years ago. And that's what's continuing to play out. But I think that the fact that there's no market uh, response shouldn't make people complacent. Not about the United States abandoning the World's Health Organization and not about uh, the state of the U.S.-China uh, relationship, which I believe if history goes wrong, goes off track in this decade, the far and away the most likely way in which that will happen is fissures between the United States and China. So, so Larry, if the goal is to modify China's behavior in some way, shape, or form, uh, is there a way to do that as a practical matter? It looks like President Xi's decided what he wants to do, whether it's in Hong Kong or other places. It doesn't look like anything we're doing is changing his mind any. Look, I, I think one of the lessons of uh, human life, and it's also a lesson of global life, is that it's harder to change people and it's harder to change nations than we often uh, hope it would be. And that... Uh, Threats and scolding are not all that effective as uh, tactics. And so I'm not surprised that this isn't working very well with respect to China. And of course, it creates all the wrong incentives over the medium and uh, long term. It strengthens the people who say, in China that any kind of interrelationship with the United States is a mistake against those who want to be more intertwined uh, with uh, the United States. It teaches China that they need to avoid any kind of vulnerability to us, which means they will put more emphasis on splintering uh, their technologies and their economic approach from anything that's global and is involved uh, with us. But in fairness, uh, these are really hard problems, and it's much easier to object to particular means that are being pursued uh, than it is uh, to propose ways that will be effective. I think over time, we're going to have to reduce our aspirations for how much we're going to change uh, China and concentrate on the set of issues that most directly uh, impact on uh, our security. And we're going to have to think about uh, aspects of our own behavior uh, that at times are provocative and recognize that in a bargain, uh, you have to demand. You get to demand things, but you also have to respond uh, to uh, the other side's concerns. And that our concept can't be that we run the world and China gets to decide how exactly it wants to fit into the world uh, we run. That's probably not going to work, given China's current strength and uh, broad uh, economic. Uh, power. The one other thing Larry, I would say, consistently very, oh, yeah, I'd, say one other, I'd say one other thing if I could, uh, David, I think probably the single most serious foreign policy error that the Trump administration has made is the more you think that China is in various ways a serious threat, the more important it is that we have strong global alliances with all the other countries uh, in the world. 
And so what is odd is a strategy of uh, elevating the China threat and at the same time not uh, aggressively trying to get close to all the other countries and instead in many ways abrogating commitments uh, to them and lashing out at them. Uh, in various ways. In a world where we want to put trade sanctions on uh, China, what could be dumber than threatening uh, trade sanctions on Canada and Europe and all the other countries who we need to cooperate with us if we're to have a realistic chance of influencing China's behavior? Larry, I want to come back to the United States just for a couple of minutes here, because you've expressed concern about how quickly we're coming back, at least in some parts of the country, whether we're ready, whether we have the testing, the contact tracing, things like that. We are starting to open back up. Even here in New York now, we're hearing New York City may be opening within the next couple of weeks. Uh, How will it be different, uh, these cities now, these big cities? There's a lot of talk now about whether these cities like New York City, like Boston, other places, whether they'll ever be the same again. Look, I think there are two separate questions there. David, several weeks ago, um, a set of criteria were laid out. There seemed to be a consensus around those criteria. In fact, the Trump administration laid them out for how much progress we had to make with respect to health, how much death counts had to come down, how much testing had to be uh, in place. None of those criteria have been met and we're still moving ahead. And I think those were probably reasonable criteria when we laid them out. And I think it's therefore quite risky uh, to be moving ahead. I can understand why the decision is uh, being made, but I'm very concerned. And I think we are taking substantial risks of a second wave of a reemergence. Everything the world knows about pandemic disease suggests that it doesn't grow. It's not an inverted V. It doesn't grow and then revert back to zero. It's more like uh, upside down uh, W. It goes up and then it comes down and then it goes uh, up again. And I think we're taking a a substantial risk uh, of that. And people, uh, markets uh, need to be aware that that's very much a risk we're taking. We could be doing much more to minimize that risk. We could have a much more organized national effort to ma- to massively increase the level of testing uh, in the United States, for example, but we don't. We could be engaged in a major effort when there are tens of millions of people who are unemployed to hire people to do contact uh, tracing so as to reduce uh, the spread. We could recognize, as is increasingly being recognized by the scientists, the problem of super spreaders and be trying to pursue targeted strategies directed at making sure that any super spreaders are separated from the rest of the population as rapidly as possible. But we're not doing any of that. And so I think we are taking substantial Uh, needless risks of more trouble uh, down uh, the road. We may luck out. It may be okay. Mm -hmm. Nobody can predict uh, 
pandemics, but uh, sometimes people don't buy insurance and they don't get sick. And it works out okay not to have bought insurance, but that doesn't make it the right thing uh, to do. So I'm alarmed at our strategy. I think it's extremely odd that as a country we are debating, and this is a bipartisan issue, we are debating a $3 trillion uh, bill and not 2% of it is devoted to uh, finding vaccines and therapies and increasing testing. And so I would suggest as a minimum threshold of responsibility that 2% of any legislation we devote to addressing these economic problems be uh, devoted to the health aspect. Okay, there you have it. Thank you so much, Larry Summers. He's our special contributor. Of course, he's former Secretary of Treasury. That's it for this edition of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. See you next week. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.